This is the Horse Radio Network. What a beautiful day for horses in the morning. You are listening to the number one horse podcast in the world. Here's your entertaining look at the horse world and the people in it. Well, before we get the show started, Horse Radio Network for the first time has a wide selection of Horse Radio Network merchandise available for the holidays. Hats, saddle pads, masks, clothing, mugs, and so much more, either screen printed or embroidered. Get your orders in now for you or your HRN listening friends. Visit horseradionetwork.com and click on the banner on the homepage today. Happy holidays, everybody. I am Coach Jen in Ocala, Florida. And I am Tara Tibbetts from Fort Worth, Texas, and you are listening to the monthly fox hunting episode of Horses in the Morning on the Horse Radio Network for November 19th. We're almost done with 2020, episode 2563. Good morning, Horse World. This is our special fox hunting episode. We come to you the third Thursday of every month. So mark your calendar to come back and check out what's going on in the fox hunting world. Woohoo! And coming up on today's fox hunting episode, we're going to chat a little bit about how to carry your lunch with you in the hunt field. And then Britt Vega stops by to talk about taking OTTBs out into the hunt field in a really, really smart way. And then Sarah McKay from the Ozark Highland Hounds is starting a new hunt. Oh, boy. I never thought I would hear I would hear the words coming out of my mouth. Starting a new hunt. I know. It's exciting. It's very exciting. And speaking of exciting, what's going on in Tara's life? What have, what have you been up to since we talked last? So, since we talked last, I went to the Fort Leavenworth hunt opening meet outside of Kansas City, uh, Kansas and Missouri. It's in that, it's funny, we were in that area and where we were in five states over the course of two days. Wow. So, we enjoyed, um, it was exceptionally windy. It was kind of a stinker. They'd been having beautiful autumn hunting weather, tons of good runs, lots of good sport and the hounds were working their butts off and then of course you get to opening and there were 90 riders in the field which was beautiful stunning wonderful and it was a great day um but it was just it was really windy and it got kind of warm and so the hounds worked their butts off and we had a few really 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 short runs Mm um i think we were actually we were out for quite a while three and a half or four hours but it you know it's always a challenge when there's a lot of wind for Mm -hmm. the scent yeah. But so we did that and then I just have been getting Simon legged up. We we actually are planning to attend the opening meet for Ozark Highland Hounds, which their opening meet is in December. And um I also got a new gadget that Uh-oh. I I wanted to plug. I'm pretty excited about. I just got it last week. I got one of those Pivos. You know, oh, that's that- the camera. Yes. Well, so what it actually is, the Pivo, so like the Solo Shot and the Pixio, I think, are actually cameras. The Pivo is different in that it's actually just a contraption that you you buy the Pivo thing and then you download an app on your phone and you you put your phone in the Pivo and turn the app on and it records you while you're riding on your phone. Oh, so I see. So the, the motorized, uh, what's the word they call yes. it? Um, there's a word they use in the camera business that... It's a motorized thing that 
allows the the phone uh-huh. in this case to move and the app rather than buying an entirely separate piece of machinery you just use your oh, i love it so can i ask how much a pivo costs that's just it they're like crazy so i they have different packages right now and i may have reached out to them about sponsoring oh they should um, totally right cuz and they they do have specific like horse settings for their their product. So I did where I got the Pivo silver. There's a silver and a red and all of the blog stuff and reviews. And there's actually a whole Pivo horse Facebook group. They all recommended the silver. So I got the silver. So it's the silver. It's a case for the Pivo with the remote, a tripod, and then some other, it's another attachment that I actually don't really think I need, but the whole thing was $209. Dang, I'm getting one of those. I've wanted one of those forever, but the whole buying an entirely separate piece of mach- electronic machinery yes. kind of got in my way. But being able to just put it now, does it work for Android and iPhone? Yes, Android <gasps> and iPhone. Oh. And they're constantly updating. And like there's a horse setting and there's a horse beta setting. And the, the cool thing is the Facebook group, they have a someone put a PDF and it's a step by step, like what to set all your settings at, how to check to make sure it's working. I literally put my tripod in the ring and I was in the saddle riding and it was recording me in five minutes. First time. I so want this. I don't have, I don't have mirrors. I don't have a riding instructor. I I don't have a ground Mm -hmm. person to say, Hey, by the way, you're doing such and such. Oh, I want this so bad. So I, and I, if, if you, anyone's listening and they want to see, I did post a little snippet from the first video I took on my Instagram at TN Tibbetts. And it is, so it was kind of funny. So it runs on artificial intelligence and it follows your horse and it followed Simon perfectly. And Simon's a solid brown, dark brown horse. He doesn't have any white socks. I didn't put any white boots on him. Some people say you do better if you put some white on him. It's easier to follow. I didn't have any trouble. The one time it did lose me and it was not a big deal, but it, um, it moved over to my Foxhound Linda and it just kind of zoomed in on her for a second. And I and you can watch it where you can see the way your phone is moving if it's following you. And I could see that it had locked in onto her. Uh-huh. <laughs> so I just rode back by it and it started following me again. Yeah, and I watched that very carefully. And by the way, I hate you for that canter. Um, right? It's, <laughs> it's the most beautiful canter ever. I watched, when I was watching the camera, it was following you, following you, following you. And you rode right across where Linda was sitting, sanding uh-huh. the dog. And yep. As you left the frame, it stayed with the stationary object. And then as you came back into the frame, it picked you back up again and off it went. Yeah. Uh-huh. Yeah, exactly. So is there a limit how long it will record? As long as your phone doesn't die. So it will go on and on and on. And how does the, how does the video, how do you view the video? Do you download it? Do you watch it right on your phone? You watch it right on your phone. It saves it. You can you you can set the settings to where like mine it it automatically saves it into my my photos and videos. Okay, so it saves it direct to your device. Mm-hmm. And the the recommendations in the little PDF from the Facebook group that I got say to close all of your other apps, put your phone on airplane mode with Bluetooth running. And so and I and I did all the things it told me to do, and it it was. And I, my, my video was not very long. It was like 15 minutes. So it's, it's but. local to the device because we literally have no bars here at our house. Zero uh, bars. Yes. Yes. It, it has, it's just Bluetooth. It's just recording on your so, phone. So it shouldn't, cause that's, that was, that would have been a deal breaker for me because if it had to run off the, off the interweb or yeah, even no. a, a phone signal, neither of those would work. And sometimes we can get texts and sometimes we can't, um, 
Ooh, I have to seriously look into the PIVO. P-I-V-O? P-I-V-O. Okay, yep, we're going to we're gonna put a link to PIVO in the show notes. Yeah. yeah. But we're going to have a caveat. You're not allowed to go to the PIVO website, ask questions, or make a purchase, or go to their Facebook page and like it, unless you say you heard about it on the fox hunting episode on Horses in the Morning. Yes. And if you don't do that, we're going to come and get you. Yep. <laughs> Yep. Oh, that's pretty, uh, what a fascinating idea. I never, I didn't know how the PIVO worked. Cool. Yeah. And it's, I, I've thought, like you said, I've thought about buying all the other ones, but they're, you know, somebody asked me on my Facebook post, you know, what's the difference between it and the Pixio? And I went and looked at the Pixio. Well, the Pixio is five to $600. <laughs> wow. Which maybe that's great for some people, but I just, I didn't want to make that kind of an investment, but I ride at home by myself a lot. And, you know, I, I avoid jumping at home a lot because I don't have somebody here to tell me what I'm doing wrong. Well, now I can actually practice right. jumping because I can film myself and watch it and yeah. see how I'm and, doing. And what you think is going on underneath of you isn't always the same as what really is going on underneath of you. Yes. You know, because I was surprised at how much Simon has his ears forward and he looks super happy. And not that I don't think he's happy, but I just had never noticed he had his ears forward so much. <laughs> Well, that's because you're doing a good job with your eye and not watching his head. Yeah, that's I guess a good so. thing. Yeah, I, yeah. I do try to work on that because I do look down a lot. <laughs> yeah, 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 the, yeah. The looking down—that's one of my pet peeves. Just, well, and uh, and in the hunting field, like you know, I have I know a few people who have a little bit of fear jumping that they're working on and you look at pictures and most of the pictures when they're jumping they're looking down and i'm like you would have a better experience over the jump if you were looking forward yes but it's and, hard yeah. to really grasp that until you see it yeah and also fox hunting is a great way even it, regardless of what field you're in whether you're front field uh out there by yourself backfield in the trot group right um is really good for that because you need to be watching where you're going so that you don't run into a tree branch Yes. Uh, watch the footing. Make sure you don't rear-end somebody coming in front of you. You have to be aware of what's going on behind you. It's really great for people who struggle with that yes. uh, soft eye and situational awareness when they're on board a horse. Yeah. Yes. Great. Yep. Oh, yay, team. Now we're going to move on to another gadget, but this time the gadget's yes. going to be something that's been around for a very, very long time. And what is it? So the term of the month, and I, I really kind of, I went down a rabbit hole a little bit and had quite a bit of fun with this. <laughs> And I found a really delightful article that we'll have to put in the show notes. So the, the term of the month is sandwich case, which newcomers to fox hunting probably don't really. It it was a little while that I was fox hunting before I really paid attention to sandwich cases. Um, but it is just like exactly like it, like it sounds. It's a case. It's a leather case that you strap to your saddle. And there's a an obscene amount of tradition behind the sandwich case and really? what you put in it and where it is and the size of it. Oh my gosh. Like, <laughs> yes. So, and, and like anything with what you wear and what you put on your horse and fox hunting, if you talk to seven different people, you're going to get seven different, incredibly strong opinions about what is right and what is wrong. Isn't that funny? Because I think a lot of folks have the impression that fox hunting is because of the there's so many traditions and things are done a certain way that everybody agrees on everything. Not the case at all. We Not at people. all. <laughs> and it, it really, what I've come to learn both from doing the podcast and being in the Facebook group and traveling to different hunts 
it's really regional and regional so far as different parts of the United States traditions, as well as, you know, the United States versus the UK. Um, And there's really like, there's really not a lot of hard and fast rules about what you can and cannot do, which it, it, that's a, it's a rabbit trail. I'm not going to go down, but the long and short of it is, and there used to be an appointments class in the United States Equestrian Federation shows, and there maybe still are. Yes. Yeah, so t- the, so I pulled out article and I didn't check to see if this is the current rule, but the Middleburg article, it's middleburglife.com and it's called the secret history of the side saddle sandwich. And it's talks a lot about sandwich cases, but it says article Six, rules pertinent to hunter classes of the USEF standards, guidelines, and states under the heading TAC appointments. One, sandwich case. Must be combined sandwich case and flask. Sandwich case must contain a sandwich wrapped and flask must contain sherry or tea. And I've heard and read like the sandwich has to be like a cucumber sandwich and you have to cut the crust off and it has to be cut diagonally or some dumb thing like that and it has to be wrapped in wax paper (laughs) see growing up in pony club um our take on it where we were we were in the uh, mid-atlantic area had to be a cheese sandwich Uh, okay it was allowed to have mustard but not mayonnaise um funny we were allowed to have crusts and the flask had to have lemonade or something else now knowing what i know now i don't want lemonade that comes out of a metal flask no no that's not a good idea folks no Um, but yeah my and and a lot of the flasks are crystal and yeah i am not carrying something that's crystal out riding a freaking horse no (laughs) No. and i might i i actually had a sandwich case back in the day my sandwich case usually contained no, I did not usually always contained cookies. Oh, I like that. See, yeah. that's my yeah. Fig Newton well, and better than Oreos, by the way. I think what is astonishing, and I had a um a learning experience last week. So my husband got me a sandwich case made from a leather maker who used to be a customer of his for his car stuff. And this guy, his business is he makes hunting stuff out of leather but usually like gun hunting not fox hunting still neat like a little sandwich cases are not big like do you have any idea how much those stupid things cost um uh right right around two hundred dollars mine was thirteen hundred no no yeah there's something wrong with that well, they, they have to have a special sewing machine oh. that does the corners in a certain way. And there's a couple of other things. So you can't that it, you can get sandwich cases and they're perfectly lovely and appropriate for the hunt field. And if I was buying my own dang sandwich case, that's what I would get. But you'll also <laughs> see like horse country, which is kind of the go-to place to get like really a really proper hunt attire. Most of their sandwich cases are 600 to over a thousand dollars wow um and usually they're actually old because they yes. don't make a lot of new ones anymore because yes. it's so hard to get the machine that does those corners properly wow i remember when we uh, when we downsized my sandwich case brought a whopping 50 dollars. that's how much it sold doesn't that kind of make you sad now it may be or sad then really and it makes me sad now <laughs> i think i don't think the um I don't think we even got a bid on my hunt whip. I think that just got 
tossed into a box of other things. That's crazy. It's kind of sad, but yeah, yeah. I didn't know that about the machine. So a sandwich case is, if you were to imagine a giant sandwich, it's a little square box and it's got uh-huh. two little straps on the top that attach to the D's on the side of your saddle. Which most new saddles, you have to get the D-rings put on. You have to get the they D-rings put on because D-rings. a lot of new saddles yep. don't have them. And then it also has a little strap that comes out of the bottom corner that attaches yep. to a billet under your flap so it doesn't go flapping up and down on the side, horse, horse's side. Is that right? Mm-hmm. Yep. Now, yep. Do, does, do most people still use the traditional leather sandwich case or are you seeing alternatives nowadays? They're all, all leather. Yeah. Yeah, everyone I know has a leather one. They are I you are seeing people who are like taking um like more modified like canteen like saddlebags that are maybe geared for trail riding. Mm-hmm. Little little bit they're a little bit um deeper, is mm-hmm. that the word I want? Taller so you can you can get like a water bottle in them and such. Mm-hmm. Um and you don't see a ton of sandwich cases out in the field. The people who have sandwich cases are usually your, like that's kind of a sign yeah, of a, the diehards. Yeah, that's yeah. a that's a committed. And I had my sandwich case for Kevin got that thing made for me like six years ago, and this is the first season I've ever used it because I just, you know, and this is kind of a sidebar funny story. So I have a bevel artisan saddle that I bought for fox hunting because I didn't want some stupid calfskin thing that I was going to be worried about. I wanted something with some durability to the leather, and it's super comfortable, and I love it. And I kept taking the saddle to horse shows because there's a leather guy who could put D rings on. Well, I just never could catch up with him. Well, fast forward to, I think it was either on a personal Facebook page or in the fox hunting group. Well, one of the ladies who started Ozark Highland did a a tutorial video on Facebook how to manually attach D-rings to your saddle by just screwing them into the saddle tree. And so I made Kevin do it. (laughs) Oh, my gosh. Oh, I would not have the courage to do that. Would not. I wouldn't either, but Kevin did. And I mean, it's been on three. Well, no, it's been on six hunts now. Wow. So there you go. That's what we did. Now, do you also carry a flask in the front or just your sandwich case? Um, I actually only put a flask in my sandwich case, and that's really all I have in my sandwich case. Oh, so you don't far. have the sandwich in there? Mm-mm. I haven't put a sandwich in mine, no. Because mine- where every place I've been going, they've had whoopee, like, they've had an opportunity to stop. Right. COVIDly appropriate. You can go, yeah. you know, pick something up from the person in the car and they hand it to you for a snack or a drink and then. And they're all individually wrapped. Happy wagon. So my sandwich case had a separate little flask and little tiny square metal box that you could put. Right. Uh, I'm going to use my finger coats sandwich. It had to be a pretty doggone small sandwich. Let me tell you. Right. And does, is that the, is that still pretty much the norm? Yeah. 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 And I think the, the ladies flasks. And again, this is history that I know just enough to say something to like, someone's going to listen and be screaming at the radio right now. But like, I think the ladies, flask it was a small like square rectangular flask and the sandwich case both fit into and in, yeah both fit into the actual leather sandwich case the they little tin thing that you put your sandwich in yeah, the flask gentlemen like four ounces the, <laughs> yes gentlemen <laughs> would just put the sandwich in the sandwich case they would just have the tin with that and they would carry the flask separately where they have the the conical shaped crystal flask on the front of the saddle and i read somewhere that that, that was not considered appropriate for women because ladies didn't drink like they didn't obviously drink alcohol so you wouldn't want a flask advertising that you drink which i find hysterical. <laughs> which is really funny we know better <laughs> right? regardless if of what century it was in we know better yeah. <laughs> so there's a little bit of like 
And again, it's just, you know, maybe that was like the figure quotes rule at like two different hunts. And so it, you know, yeah. it's history yeah. that's carried on. But that article that we'll, we'll post the Middle, Middleburg Life, they do, the author did a really good job of talking to kind of a number of different people about like the history of the sandwich and the history of the sandwich case and the flasks and all that. And so I thought it was interesting because it was all reputable people. And I think it's all true to an extent, but I just, there's. Yeah, it's all true somewhere. Yeah, and, and anymore, nobody really cares. I think there's like four hunts in the United States where they actually really care anymore. There you go. Yeah. Well, it's it's a new age, right? Yeah, and all that, you know, most of the fox hunting groups I've ridden with, they just, they want people to come out and have a good time, and they want people to look nice and be clean. And and if you, if you choose to have a $1,300 sandwich case, more power to you. You might be a crazy person. That's right. Or if you choose to have a a hunt coat with a pocket that actually works and shove a protein bar in there. We're fine with that too. I do caution against putting flasks in your pocket of your coat. Cause I had a friend fall on hers and she has like a hip. It's like she broke her hip bone in the shape of a flask. Yeah. (laughs) Hip flask. Not a good idea. Border horse. Horse should be carrying the beverages, not the human. There we go. Well, fascinating stuff. You always come up with this stuff like, Oh, sandwich case. I could explain a sandwich case in about 90 seconds because that's all I know about sandwich cases, but you can turn it into a half an hour because you did the research. Yay. Yes. All right. Talk about research. We're going to chat with Britt Vegas now because uh, Britt Vegas takes thoroughbreds off the track and makes them into amazing field hunting horses. And she does that by starting out with a little bit of research. So why don't we get her on? Excellent. So I'm excited to be chatting today with Britt Vegas, who... I have met Britt through fox hunting in Nebraska and Kansas, and I have quite a few friends who have purchased horses from Britt, and I wanted Britt to come onto the podcast to tell us about her experiences choosing and um, training off to track thoroughbreds for fox hunting, because if I remember correctly, we're into the season of people signing up to be trainers and whatnot for their RRP. Is that, is my timing right there, Britt? You are exactly right. So for the 2021 Retired Racehorse Project makeover, those horses really should start their retraining in December. So December 1st is when it full starts. Those horses can have up to 15 rides prior to that without showing or going on fox hunts. But yeah, so everybody's right in that peak of searching for their makeover prospects for the 2021 competition. Perfect. So tell everyone a little bit about what your business is and kind of your relationship with the off the track thoroughbred. And then I want to get into more specifics about like how you pick them. Sure. So what I do is find premium sport horse prospects in a variety of disciplines straight from the track. Um, And so I specialize, I would say probably in starting field hunters as well as eventing prospects, but do sell them in various different disciplines as well. Um, so other than that, yeah, they, uh, I search them off the track, find something I think would be good at a job, bring them home, do the initial restarting, and then market them into the areas I feel like they would be strongly suited. So uh, most all of our listeners for sure ride and the thoroughbred off the track has just gone gangbusters in popularity. It really, it seems like COVID has really been good for the thoroughbred industry, but tell us a little bit about when you're at the track, what, you know, and I know you have a variety of customers from people who they need a horse that 
can make the decisions on its own all the way to, you know, someone who wants a really advanced ride, which is really seems to be your preference. So what are you looking for when you're at the track? Cause it's, you know, for most people, it's nearly impossible. And I know you have kind of a spidey sense that you can't explain, but tell us a little bit about sure. that, that part. Sure. Okay. Well, I will tell you the number one most important thing to have is really good racetrack connections. So, you know, sometimes we get people that are like, well, I could just go to the track and get a horse for less than X dollars. And I always encourage them that I I won't stop them from getting in the way of that. However, the reason just about everything that comes through my farm is exactly what it's supposed to be is because I'm working with track connections that I know on a personal level and that are offering me before everybody else, the cream of their crop. So what you might find to the general public probably has already been offered to someone like myself for that track connection, or sometimes track connections have a few people they work through. So my track connections are super vital in the success of my program because ultimately they're the ones that are starting these horses and giving them, you know, their first introductions to riding and how they cope with their atmosphere, which brings me to my next point. That's how initially I make my first decisions on what a horse might like to do. So I will talk to the track connections and, um, ask them, how does this horse like to gallop? That will tell me a lot about how that horse might ride after the track. So if it's a horse that really likes to grab the bit, take a hold and run, that typically isn't a horse that suits well in the fox hunting, nor is a horse that likes to close in races, you know, lag from the back for an extended period of time and then burst right, you know, on the home stretch, because a lot of times those horses in the field you know, they, they wait, they wait, they wait, and then in their minds make a move and it's harder for them to stay behind in the group comfortably. So the track connections are the most important to start. And the requirements that I choose a horse off the track are, does this horse have a brain? That is the most important. Okay. Yes. It's got a great brain. Now I move on. Is it sound? Yes, it's sound. Next step, confirmation. If it is sound and it has some confirmation flaws, is it something that I can live with or is it something that will likely cause it an issue down the line? Move on from there. The last thing I look at is their pedigree. Obviously, everything I like to bring home is a nice mover. And with nice moving, usually it's an attractive horse. But yeah, so the brain... The brain has to come first because you can be fancy all day long, but if you're not sane, it doesn't matter. Well, I would think that your your connection to the, the track people who have brought the horse along, you're not really going to know the brain unless you have that relationship. It, exactly. It's a way bigger gamble for somebody going to the track. And connections, a lot of times when you're looking there, if you don't know them on a personal level, it's kind of hard to get information out of them. What you're going to be buying that horse on is pictures and videos and a very short description, and that's it. So I have an insight on a lot of times how these horses have trained for several years and how they like to go, how they behave with their grooms. You know, do they walk after their races or do they get hot walks? Like so much extra details, and that helps me a lot when I bring them home on how I expose them. 
if a trainer says, hey, this horse, Zodi, really quiet to gallop, soft in the mouth, not really worried about the horses coming up behind him or if horses are jogging at him and are patient, that's a horse that will, you know, perk my interest in this horse might like to be a field hunter because they're comfortable just going with the flow. And that's, that's kind of what I look for when I look for a hunt horse is a pretty laid back horse that maybe isn't super competitive. Yes. Which makes sense. And then kind of going to the confirmation soundness exam. And I know we've talked about this and there's been a lot of chatter on Facebook that people say the, you know, pass or fail a vet check, which really is not an accurate statement. It's um, kind of tell us at all. Tell us a little bit like, is there anything that you would know in a horse's veterinary history that you're like hard no or something that might sound scary to a lot of folks, but is worth considering because that horse, if, if rehabbed properly and vetted properly could come back from. Sure. So, you know, it's kind of a hard question to ask cause it's so situational, but like a horse that might have oscillates. And for those that might not know what that term means, it's some arthritis on the fronts of their cannon bones and their fetlocks. If you take x-rays on those and it's not in the joint space, and that horse has some range has range of motion of its ankles. It's cosmetic from the outside, but it typically does not cause any issues in a second career as long as they're set, you know, they're old. So right. it's a non-issue. If you really fell in love with a horse you liked, flexed good, sound, all those things, and you x-ray it and you find a chip, to me, that's worth taking a chip out on if it doesn't have cartilage damage and the horse is still sound. Um, some things that that I will pass on is if something has chips that has degenerative damage in the joint space, because even if you take those out, you already have damage to the joint. So that may need some maintenance in the future, but even then that's not a hard pass. Like the horse decides what the horse will tolerate. So sometimes we'll go along and we'll x-ray horses that are 18, 20 years old that have never had any maintenance and something happens and we go take pictures and you see like old chips that have literally never bothered them. So it's just so hard to say what will bother a horse and what won't. But what I would like people to be a little more open-minded to track connections can be really, really honest about saying, Oh, this horse had a small bandage bow or a small bow as a two-year-old. You look at their legs and the legs look pretty clean. So many horses will have very minor bows and owners never even know. But because racehorses legs are bandaged and handled daily, intense management, they see those things that somebody else might not. And once those are healed, if they're very, if they're old and very small, I really don't think that's something that should stop somebody from moving forward with a horse. Well, and, and one thing I know, I have an off-the-track thoroughbred, and he has he's was pin-fired on, I can't remember which leg. Is that anything someone should be concerned about? Because they pin-fire bows or just pin, what do they do that for? Oh, my gosh, no. And actually, pin-firing is typically for shin bucks. So, basically, when it typically happens at two, sometimes three years old, when they're young, it's kind of like shin splints in people. And so there was an old belief that pin firing the horse caused inflammation, which increased healing to the area, which, you know, some people believe in, some don't. However, 
Pin firing is simply cosmetic after it's done. That should stop nobody from buying a horse. So, and then if you see like freeze firing, which will give you white hairs, same concept, but white hairs instead of just the scars. A lot of times they'll do those if the horse has like a minor splint yeah, um, to help heal the area. That, I, that bothers me zero. And I would never think twice about purchasing a horse that's pin fired. So then that brings me to, do you, what's, what's kind of your opinion on, do you prefer a war horse? Do you, you know, do you, do those horses stand up to a fox hunting career? And that's to say that fox hunting careers can be very different levels. Yes, absolutely. Okay. So that's, can be a tough question, but I will tell you a war horse is actually my favorite horse to buy off the track. If you buy an eight-year-old racehorse that's legs look pretty good and it's sound coming off the track, that horse has proven through heavy work and many years that they will remain sound. So I think your gamble on whether a horse is going to stay sound or not is much higher purchasing a three-year-old that hasn't proven if he can stay sound versus an eight, 10-year-old horse that has run and had an intense job for so long and is still sound. So they've already proven to you they can stay sound and they've proven they can stay sound through what they may have in their legs. If they have oscillates or, you know, had a very minor bow many years ago, you know, it's just, there's proof in the pudding there. And so they're showing it on the other side of that. You have to be pretty careful purchasing a war horse for fox hunting because They've also proven that they're very competitive. So sometimes it can be a little tricky to hunt a war horse in the field unless it's a horse that really is comfortable galloping in the morning and only runs to the front when asked, you know, and a lot of them actually are like that. I've, I've broke many a war horse to hunt and they're great. If you're a whip, if you're a whip and you're looking for a horse, a war horse is one of the best decisions you can make because they're brave and they've seen a lot in their time frame. So being all by themselves and performing a job is typically very easy for them. I never would so, have yeah, thought of that, but that I makes sense. Love them. Yeah. Yep. The field is the only part that can be a little tricky, but that's where knowing the track connections very well, knowing the gallop riders and knowing the grooms tells you a ton about that horse and whether it would likely like hunting or not. So when you, you start, cause you, you'll ride them for a little while before you take them out in the hunt field uh, sometimes, but how quickly do yep. you know after hunting, taking a horse out hunting, how quickly can you tell if you think they're going to make it? Um, I can typically for me personally tell after the first ride because their innate reaction to a lot of the, of the new things is tells me how, even when they know their job, if something's new or strange how they'll react to it. So not to say that one doesn't develop and become quieter and quieter as hunting goes on. Um, that definitely happens, but I feel like you can get a really good idea if you, you really understand the ins and outs of a thoroughbred brain, um, how they'll make it. And I'll also stress here, if you're looking for a thoroughbred and you want it to hunt, find somebody similar to me in your area or anywhere that's educated on bringing a hunt horse along because you can take a really nice thoroughbred that would make a lovely hunter and expose them in the wrong kind of way and then ruin hunt for them. And then it's really hard to get them back after that happens. So they really need really good experiences to start to proceed 
to proceed down in training. So like when you, and when you do start hunting and mostly just cause I'm curious, not cause we're telling anybody yeah. what to do, but sure. do you kind of gauge the horse under you as to whether or not you ride, you know, at the front of first flight or do you always start in second flight or kind of where are every, you in terms? Yep. Every horse is different. So when I take a horse out, I have an idea in my head of how they'll likely respond. However, it's a blank slate and I have no expectations for that horse because when you set up big goals to start something new, you set the horse up to fail. And basically what I'm doing when I bring them in the hunt field is catch training them. I'm letting them make decisions and then praising them when it's the one I like and just guiding them down a path to choose the right option. So a lot of times at the trailer, I'm not quite sure what I'm going to do. I, I like that horse started over fences before they go in the hunt field. And then I typically choose a country to hunt in that doesn't have huge coops that are very manageable. They get to follow a lead. And yeah, once we start hunting where I put them in the order kind of depends on how the horse is coping in the field. A lot of them don't want to be the very last horse, but if you stick them, you know, third or fourth from the end, it's great because they get to see a lot of leads go over the coops. They follow, they generally enjoy it. What I don't suggest doing, and this is just my personal preference, you know, people may have success doing this, but is taking the horse and saying, oh, I want to go really slow with it. So he gets a good understanding and doing the walk trot group. Yeah. And then the you make it is such a forward. Yes. The thoroughbred is such a forward horse that you're actually asking more of them to walk trot in a group than you are asking them to canter and jump in a group, in my personal opinion. Yeah. But that also goes back to you need a really educated rider that starts them over coops. And no matter how they jump that coop, you have to be out of the horse's way so they don't get accidentally punished because they took a long spot or they got really close or they hesitated, rocked back and jumped. So just make sure you have somebody educated up there that gives the horse a really good experience to the field. So that's kind of a, kind of how I start them in the field. And it, like I said, you just can't have any expectations going yeah. forward. <laughs> and then I just gauge the day as I go. There you go. Yes. So one of the things I just got out of that comment is if you are a person who wants to be perpetually in the, trot and hardly canter feel just don't get an OTTB. <laughs> That's number uh, one. Actually, don't get an OTTB that has just started hunting. Ah, uh, there you go. Get one that's that got hunted. eight years under his belt. <laughs> yeah, or even like my horses that have hunted a whole season now can all go back and ride in the walk trot group and it's no problem. Mm -hmm. But they have, a, I should say also what's really important is allowing, you can't just have a hold of the horse's mouth through the whole hunt and make it a pulling match. That horse needs to be able to look around, be aware of its footing. So it needs to lower its head and look down at the ground. If it, you know, if it feels like it needs to and look around because that's what builds confidence in the horse. If you have a tight hold on the rein the entire time and you're telling it what to do every step, that doesn't make a confident horse. That makes a horse that feels like it can't Nervous. think unless you tell it yeah. exactly what you want it to do. Well, that actually if you see me in the field riding. Yeah. Horses that I've made already. Like they're on a loose floppy rein and I'm talking around and visiting and that horse just knows its job. Yeah. Well, having a hold on their head brings up my next question is you always hear the, you know, you've got to have a this bit, that bit, the other bit. I remember growing up in Pony Club, they always said, oh, if you ride in an X bit, you need to go up one, so to speak. 
when you start the brand new ones into the hunt field, uh, do you usually have a, do you have sort of a system that you go with and then tweak it with each individual horse or is it very individual or is it, oh my gosh, I must have a in their mouth? Uh, no, it for sure. Not that. Um, I start them in a snaffle and until they show me that they need more than a snaffle, they all go in a snaffle. And I'm not that person that pushes and says every horse has to ride in a snaffle. If they can't, you're doing it wrong. I, I, everything is so gray and people that want it to be black and white shouldn't have thoroughbreds because they're not black and white. (laughs) So I start everybody in a, yeah, horses in general. Yeah, so I start them all in a snaffle, and that's after I've ridden them in the arena enough enough to get a pretty good feel for the horse. Now, like I said, if I ride them in the arena and they take a hold of the bit and like to really like bow their neck and pull on the hand, and a lot of times that's how they galloped on the track as well, they're probably not going to want to be a fox hunter anyways. It's not to say they can't. I've been surprised by many of horses that then went out and were very comfortable in the group. But so I like to take them off the bit in the ring. They have to ride on a loose rein. They have to walk trot canter on a loose rein and they have to already be conscious of where my shoulders are, which this all sounds like it would take a long time to get, but I can usually do it in a ride or two on a horse. When I set my shoulders back, I want that horse to slow down. When I drop my shoulders forward, I want that horse to speed well, up. That makes, that makes perfect sense amazing. because that's how a jockey's riding. I mean, a jockey's not using leg aids. He's no, they don't have, yeah. yes, exactly. And I also gallop racehorses, so I have a little tricky inside there. So um, I understand how they gallop. Therefore, I understand how to bring them back. It's not to say I've never been run off in the hunt field with a brand new baby thoroughbred. However, A, it doesn't scare me, and B, I can pull them up really quick. So that goes back to making sure you have an educated person giving them a good experience because you put on like an Amy and it's their first or second thoroughbred or they've not brought one along in the hunt field before. If the horse gets a little strong and they're not able to correct it, it, it gets scary for the horse and the rider. And then the rider is intimidated to go back out and the horse doesn't really understand what the job you're asking him to do is. So, and I like to also have a second one of my horses in the field when I'm hunting a new one. And I make sure it's a steady eddy. And then I will say, hey, Tara, I'm going to put you on Raptor today. So that way I can either have Raptor follow my baby. If he's a little worried about horses getting too close to his rear end, I'll put my own horse behind him so nobody runs into the back of him. Or I'll follow my own horse over coops because I know exactly how that horse approaches coops. It's a steady eddy. It's quiet. And it gives my baby a a great lead. Which I think this so all goes I, back I to a lot of tricks there. It's it's you know if you're experienced bringing a horse along in the hunt field is one thing to get an OTTB, but I you know I I think a big takeaway from this for a lot of folks would be, you know, y- hypothetically anyone can go to the track and spend a few thousand dollars and get a you know get a horse, but it's so worth the money to spend a couple extra thousand dollars and get it from someone like you, who knows the horse and knows you know, has ridden it in the hunt field and um, has that knowledge about it to set it up for success. Oh, absolutely. And I'm not saying come by every hunt horse for me, but find somebody that does what I do, if nothing else, because at the end of the day, I do this because I love the horses, which means 
I want the horse to have the best experience that it can have. The way that happens is having somebody that really understands how they think, help them along. Thoroughbreds, in my opinion, and I ride a lot of horses that aren't thoroughbreds as well, are the most willing breed of horse you will ever come across. Yes, they have, they're more forward than most, but they're so willing. And I will take forward energy with a willing attitude over lazy and stubborn any day of the week. And I found, I grew up riding quarter horses and I've had a couple of warm bloods and I feel like the thoroughbreds I've had have been the least obstinate horses. Agree completely. So do you have an RRP horse for next year? Um, I do. I have a big gray, which I typically, I love to sell everybody gray horses because they love (laughs) to buy them. However, I swore I wouldn't own one myself. And here I am with a big gray thoroughbred that it's going to take me hours to have clean before every hunt. But um, yes, and he, he's only had two rides so far. He's just been hanging out um, since he came off the track because once again, he can't really start work until December. So, um, but he is absolutely everything that I look for in a hunt horse. I rode him, I've ridden him twice. And on his very first post-track ride, he was walk track cantering on a floppy rain, woed to my voice and was just super easygoing. My uh, outdoor ring has a highway that runs along one side and a train that runs along the other. So it's very busy. So if I Good take a thoroughbred, desensitizing. <laughs> yes, just off the track. And they're not too worried about the traffic. They're not too worried about the train. That's, that horse tells me already that they cope very well with their surroundings. So when things are not predictable, they're okay with it. Now, if I have a horse that's spooking at the jumps in the ring or the cars or that, it doesn't mean they can't hunt. But if I ride three or four, they're still spooking at those things. That's not a horse I would take in the hunt field because I also think about the other horses in the hunt field and somebody else might have a young horse out there. And if my horse is spooking and losing its mind, that's really detrimental to other horses, even hunting around it as well, which people truly need to take into consideration when they're taking a horse in the field. Yeah, absolutely. Because like my horse, Simon, very he's super chill. He's super laid back. But if he's in the field next to a horse that's jigging and nervous, it makes him nervous. And so I'll usually yeah. move him to a different spot because then he'll be fine. Yep. So yep. we're about out of right time, but I wanted to ask oh, one. Yeah. Um, will you ke- do you usually keep your RRP horses or do you usually sell them? Well, I would like to say I sell them, but so far I'm kind of on a a bad track record (laughs) keeping some RRP horses around. And I think that's because typically I sell all my horses pretty, you know, they're not on my farm for very long. Yeah. So after I have a horse on my farm for a year, I'm so bonded to that horse that, um, they end up sticking around and I've sold a few of them. I've probably sold half of the RRP horses that I've taken, but, um, all my past and present RRP horses hunt, which also means that my 18-hand thoroughbred is owned by my 11-year-old, and he's my hunting rock star. Anybody can get on that horse. He's perfect. He's and then um, this gray horse, I'm, I have high hopes that will do well in the hunt field and hopefully be a mount for my husband in the future. So, Oh, perfect. So he, if our he listeners will likely stay. Good. If our listeners, are their interests are peaked and they, they want to see what you've got and talk to you about getting a horse, how would they find you? Sure. Um, I have a website 
royalfoxstables.com. And I am also on Facebook under Brit Vegas Gingenbot. And I'm even if you're not wanting to buy a horse, but you have questions, you have a horse, you have an issue, I am happy to answer those questions always because all yes. it does is help horses in the future. So reach out if you if you have a problem or you're looking for a horse, I'm happy to help. Yes, and I will say from experience, I have taken Britt up on that offer and been very happy with the info. So thank you so much for joining us. And I think everyone, even if you're not a fox hunter, is going to enjoy learning this information. Thanks so much. Well, if you didn't want to go shopping for a potential hunt horse before you do now, right? <laughs> right? Oh, my gosh. I do I do have a problem with, like, because Britt's gotten to now. She kind of knows what I like. She's met, I didn't get Simon from her, but she's been with him in the hunt field a few times. So she kind of knows what I like. And she'll be like, I'm getting one in, Tara. <laughs> I like it. I should stay away from her Facebook page far away. <laughs> well, and I've, I've kind of, I kind of. I don't yet, but I think in the next year I'm going to need a second hunt horse. And Coco's just she's she's angry and merry and be a hunt horse. Yeah, I just don't think she would do well in the hunt field. Um, judging by the little gray horse that she tried to kill at the horse show on Sunday. Um, <laughs> so, but I've kind of made myself a promise that I'm not going to get another horse until. Um, and it sounds sad to say this, but Jaguar's 27, and so when I don't have Jaguar anymore. I'll have room in my barn for another one. Well, so quality versus quantity is important. Yes. Right? You know? Yes. That's that's nothing wrong with that. That's just being sensible. And speaking of um, doing research and everybody's got an opinion and getting more horses yes. and all those things, uh, we're going to have a little chat now. And I have to say this just because it, I love alliteration. Hairstyles in the hunt field. That's not at all divisive. I mean, it's it's not as divisive as like what color breeches you're wearing or <laughs> what what colors are in your tweed coat or um Oh that's divisive? Oh my, that's terrible. No purple I mean, no, we're not no even lavender talk about, stripe in there not allowed. No. Well depend depends. Depends on which hunt you're at. <laughs> depends. Yes. So what 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 prompted this topic? The hairstyles in the hunt field? Yes. The fact that you have hair? I guess, yeah. Well, I didn't know if there was some event or con- or, or confrontation or Facebook post that, you know, like, oh, we got to talk about that, just in general. Well, I, so I think it's important. I do have, I have kind of arbitrarily strong opinions about hair at horse shows and in the hunt field. And you should. And if you read anything about fox hunting, the, you know, the basics of it is you look nicer if your hair is well kept, but ultimately it's fundamentally dangerous to have long hair in definitely in a braid, but also kind of in a ponytail when you're out in the hunt field. And I can say this because in one of the hunts I was at in the last couple of months, we, we were going through a very heavily wooded area and, um, a friend of mine, like she misjudged a tree limb and almost knocked herself out on the tree limb and came off the horse and her hair was up in her helmet. So it wasn't an issue. But if you have a long braid in that scenario, she literally could have been hung by her hair in a tree. Uh, Yeah. Particularly if you use the ponytail port. Yes. Yeah. Or yeah, I can see that. See, and the whole tradition of putting your hair up inside your helmet was created by people who don't, who don't actually 
ride in the field, and when hair was put up underneath of hats and in cute little buns, nobody cared about whether or not the helmet was keeping your head safe. It was there to keep your hair from strangling you. Right. But nowadays, it's like, okay, now we have to keep our hair from strangling us, but we also have to make sure our helmet fits properly. So therein lies the problem. Yes. Which, you know, and I have, like, the world's largest amount of hair. I don't have, like, thick hair strands, but I have a ton of hair. So when I go try helmets on and I do like, I, I don't disagree necessarily with the fact that hair under like pulled up under your helmet, like the whole hunter hair tradition. I I don't disagree that that could potentially be dangerous and that some kind of a bun might be safer. Um, at the end of the day, fox hunting is during the winter time. And when you put your hair over your ears and do the hunter hair, it keeps your ears warm. It does. Absolutely. So that's a side secret. So yes, yes. I like hunter hair for that reason. But I also try to be really conscientious of I don't like I don't pull my ponytail up and like leave it in a big lump. I try to spread it out so it's like an even layer of hair between my helmet yes. and my head. Yeah, if you take your your hair and you pull it back like you're going to make yourself a ponytail, and you do one or two twists, and then bring it up uh-huh. over to the center of your head on the very top as if you were a marionette, you can take that ponytail for lack of a little better word of hair yeah and you're right you can spread it a whole way across the back of the crown of your head so it yep. doesn't make that giant chunk yeah. yes so you can and get I, a better I very easily get if i wear a baseball hat for a long time i'll get a headache but when i do my hair appropriately under my helmet it doesn't bother me at all but i cannot like the helmet that i get fitted with my hair up i cannot wear that same helmet with my hair down no. it's at least a half size too big yeah yeah and that's, so, that's, that's important to know about your, your gear. Yeah. Yes. Yes. Yeah. And so I, I think it's important for anyone with long hair. And I did a little, like, I glanced at a couple of Hunt's websites before this. And I don't remember which Hunt it was. And I don't really want to throw anyone under the bus either. But they said in their um, description that if a man has long hair, they want the men to wear hairnets too. I have seen that before as well. Yes. And it's not, you know, people I think think like, oh, it's stuffy and whatever. Like, you just think I should wear a hairnet because it, you know, whatever. But it it truly is a safety issue in a lot of senses. Just like I said in my example of my friend who got hit by the tree, like, very easily her hair could have gotten snagged on that tree. And it would have been, like, it was incredibly painful anyways. But I can't have imagined how bad it would be if she'd gotten hung up by her hair. Now, the hair, the hairnet, I could argue both sides. The hairnet, essential for keeping it neat, man or woman. But if you've got a hairnet on and the hairnet gets snagged on something, it's going to tear. But it is going to get yes. snagged on stuff just as much as your hair is. But a hairnet's going to tear the hair tearing out of your head, not so much. I have had experience, similar experiences in that I wear a, um, for lack of a better word, a hell hat, which is basically a yeah. wide-brimmed hat with the crown taken out that sits down over top of your riding helmet to give you shade. Uh, and I wear one of those all the time when I've ride. And I've lost several of them. To low-hanging limbs. Yeah. Yeah. So, yes. yeah. There you go. So, hair under the helmets, guys. Ponytails. So, you're anti pon Well, see, I'm not anti-ponytail because I do things besides fox hunt. I'm fine with wearing a, a ponytail that drapes down your back anywhere else. Because right, you're not going to yeah. be running into a tree limb. I Well, unless, I mean, trail riding, I generally... Usually, I put my hair up under my helmet, even trail riding, if especially in trees... Um, and, and because if I'm wearing that particular helmet, my hair has to be up, has to be up. Right. See, my helmet's designed to fit without the hair up inside. Yes. Cause that's how I, I fitted it because I've, 
my see my pony club upbringing it scarred me for life and I, I cannot wear my hair inside my helmet it's just it makes my skin crawl because in pony club it was completely and utterly forbidden to wear your hair up under your helmet because they felt it negatively impacted the fit of the helmet and it can that's interesting yeah that's because I feel like that's kind of a new to me it's a new conversation that people have been having oh that's been around for a long time in pony club because I will say and it this is just I mean I have no reason to be a traditionalist considering I grew up riding cow horses in Montana, but the show jumpers, the girls with the long blonde hair flying around, I mm-hmm. just, I think it looks terrible, but that's just, <laughs> if they're happy and they love it, go for it. But yeah. I spe- oh, I can't remember her name. The, the gal who has, who wears the feathers, the in her feathers. Hair. Yes. I love that. I would never do yeah. it. What I, you know what I love about it is it catches the attention of people outside the equestrian world and they go, Ooh, isn't that fun? Yes. You know, yes. I'm, I'm okay with that. And she's an amazing rider. So there you go. She is an There's amazing that. rider. I, I just, I, I feel like if I had hair like that, Coco would be in like Wyoming. <laughs> no, she'd be fine. I don't think she would. She's real spooky. Well, speaking of uh, stepping outside the boundaries, doing something new and different, uh, we're going to get a hold of Sarah McKay, who is, I'm going to do this again, never thought I'd say it in my life, starting a new hunt. So I am excited today to be chatting with, hopefully we'll get to talk a little bit both with Sarah Martin and Sarah McKay, but we're going to start with Sarah Martin, who is brave, possibly a little bit crazy, and is starting (laughs) a new fox hunt. Hi, thanks for having us on the show. Excellent. So this all, well, let me rewind. I don't remember exactly how I met y'all on Facebook. It might've been through Steve Leavenworth or Steve Smith with Leavenworth, but we met in person when I went to the Fort Leavenworth opening hunt and I spent as much time as possible picking your brains about starting a hunt, but you kind of went from 90 to nothing quickly, right? Yeah. Yeah. It's definitely, um, been exciting for sure. (laughs) Yes. Tell everyone where you're located and then tell us kind of like the process of from, Hey, we're starting a hunt to getting it started. Okay. Um, so we are in Steelville, Missouri, which is by Fort Leonard Wood. It's pretty much dead center of Missouri. It's in the Ozark Highland plateau, the Salem plateau. So, um, we're, we're on high ground, lots of rivers, um, lots of cattle, pretty much no crops. So, um, my husband is from there and after going kind of 10 rounds with him about whether or not we could move to Maryland or Pennsylvania to be near all of my cool fox hunting friends, um, we decided to move down to Steelville where my husband's family is from and, um, that. The, all of the nearest hunts are about two and a half to three hours away. So we're pretty much triangulated between um, Shawnee to our east is about three hours. Fort Leavenworth to our west is about three hours. And then Bridalsburg, which is two and a half hours north of us. So, um, you know, it's like, well, we both love to be down there. We both love Steelville so much, but there was no hunt. So we kind of... Um, I have a good friend down there, Crystal Earhart, who um, grew up breeding Goodman Coyote hounds and hunting from trucks her whole life. Um, She's an absolutely fabulous dog trainer. And I approached her and was like, you know, hey, would you want to do this with me? And she's like, oh, my God, I've always wanted to ride. She's also a really great horse trainer. And she 
like I've always wanted to ride to my house, but I kind of just didn't know how to do it. And I'm like, well, I understand that part. And she's, you know, got a kennel on her place. And then I um, approached Sarah McKay, who's a friend of mine. I was like, yeah, I think I, I think I want to start a farmer's pack. And, and, you know, she was like, Oh, that's nice. And I'm like, no, no, you don't understand. I don't think I can do this without you. <laughs> I need, I need a reasonable brain and, a, and and somebody with, you know, some, some business sense here. Um, so we brought her on board. So it's us three, three ladies. And between the three of us, we pretty much have all the angles covered, um, shockingly. So. Oh, that's so cool. And And you really made the decision early this year or late last year to get started. Probably late last year, um, I've had, I've been hunting, so I'm 37 and I started when I was eight years old um, with a hunt that doesn't exist anymore in Missouri. And so I hunted for quite a long time. I whipped into Eleanor Hartwell at Bridalsburg for 14 years and between her and Ken George, I would people, you know, you should do the professional development program, you know, you need to move forward with this. And um, my full-time job is as a nurse practitioner um, in internal medicine and as a hospitalist. So, you know, I was like, no, no, no. And, you know, I have a, I have a job, I have a job. And so finally, when we kind of approached um, the MFHA as far as the new hunt development program that they have, and, you know, how do we go about getting a huntsman, you know, we had Marion Thorne and she was like, well, why don't you just do it? And I'm like, well, that's what everybody keeps saying. So maybe I should. So, um, yeah, we kind of just took it from there and I've got Crystal and Sarah McKay, who I call Mick, um, just so for confusion's sake. <laughs> and, so when, uh, when you're starting a hunt, what do you think is the most important thing The you know, establishing leadership or I guess what order, like establishing leadership, finding territory, you know, there's a lot that goes I mean, into it. I think that t- people take for granted. Yeah, I mean, for us, it was very much where where do my husband and I want to be going forward in our future? Right. And then, you know, from that aspect, we kind of went to, well, you know, who 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 do we need? You know, what kind of help do we need? Who do right. we need? You know, who, who can we ally ourselves with to kind of move this forward? And that's kind of a crystal came in and having, you know, it's really, it's a lot easier to go up and approach landowners. We're not total outsiders. You know, when you walk up to somebody's front door and you say, no, I married Ray Hatcher's grandson. And oh, yeah, okay, I know Ray, come on, you know. And so that's really helpful. And Crystal living down there is really helpful. You know, she has been huge getting us in, into some really, really great properties and some places. And, um, and her husband is um, Gerald Earhart is the president of the um, Crawford County Foxhounds, which um, run uh, coyotes from trucks. So oh, interesting. And and does Crystal have some property that you hunt on? Is that right? Yeah, I don't know. She has like five hundred acres. I'm not okay. Kidding. They have a uh, I don't even know what you call it, like a family compound. <laughs> I like <laughs> it. Of, of, lot of land and yeah pretty much the whole one side is um relatives nearly all the way down uh, so are y'all picture. are y'all hunting hounds yet or are you you getting to yeah, know the territory our hunting hounds we started i think we got our homes in march oh wow um, 
Yeah, so we kind of got delayed by COVID. We had a lot more to pick up on the East Coast. Um, I'm fortunate that I traveled quite a bit and have, you know, really been impressed by the support that people have given me far and wide and wanting to give us hounds and make sure we're getting into some really good lines and letting us try some hounds and figure out what's best for our territory. Um, we are really, really blessed. You know, they say breed a hound for your country, but with Gerald and Crystal, um, they are very, very well known in the Midwest as Goodman coyote hound breeders. And so they have Goodman hounds that they've been breeding and we've been able to transition quite a few of those over to, um, the pack life, which, you know, I know Daryl was kind of skeptical at first and some, and some others were skeptical, skeptical at first, but we really have about four now that are, are going in the pack. So two couples that are, and they're beautiful. They're the, they're out of July in the early, I think late, late 1800s, early 1900s were an offshoot of July as uh, bred out of Kentucky and Virginia. And then have really, really taken over in the Midwest. They're a lot finer um, and softer in temperament than a walker, but they are just machines. <laughs> Which Absolutely to non-hound people, they do all look like hounds, right? Like the walkers and the goodmans and the, they, they look similar to a foxhound if you don't really know the difference other than just kind of size and color. Yeah, if you don't, yeah, if you don't know what you're looking at. Um, yeah, but Goodman, um, Goodman's and July's both have a lot of blue merling and um, a lot of them have what they call glass eyes, blue eyes. Oh, yeah. So, you know, certainly to somebody who's used to looking at um, the more traditional tricolor hounds, um, they definitely will catch your eye. Awesome. And y'all have been going out and doing autumn hunting? Yep. We, we you know, got the, got the small, a few of them in March and then started transitioning the Goodmans over. Um, we got got some packs that gave us some really well-broke hounds at first, which was nice. And yeah. that helped us get some of the Goodman started and then um, started hunting first of Ju- first of August. And that's been going really, really well, you know, as far as, you know, we're all green as grass here for me to move from whip to huntsman and from, you know, Mick and Crystal to move from a truck or, you know, in the field. How many people do y'all usually have when you go out? I just want to say this is Sarah McKay now. Yeah, so right now we have about 23 members and we have a lot of social members, which is really exciting. And we've been excited to, to have that support um, from folks, you know, for, you know, that are new to the sport or are just really excited about what we're doing. Usually in the field, we'll have between five to six people. And that's just we're trying to keep things fairly manageable as we get going and um, want to be respectful, you know, to landowners. And we're bringing a lot of new fox hunters along, too. And they're all really accomplished riders coming from the Western world um, as well. A lot of them have spent their, you know, riding careers cutting or roping. And they're really excited to, to try the new sport and fox hunting. And we're excited. I think that's the really rewarding part, too, is being able to share the love of the sport with folks that otherwise wouldn't have an opportunity to, to get involved. Well, and that's what, you know, the, the main question I always get from listeners, because, you know, as you all know, you know, there's far more than fox hunters who listen to this podcast, is that you don't have to be an inventor or a, an English writer in general to go out and fox hunt. And I think also people just assume that if hunts are in the United States, they're all on the East Coast. Well, yeah. I'm excited and I'm hoping at least a couple people will listen and you're 
near near Steelville, Missouri, and you'll you'll get some new members. But kind of what's your role, Sarah McKay, with the hunt, um, with Marty being the huntsman? Um, what's your focus? Yeah, so the three of us between Crystal, uh, Sarah, Martin, so we go by Marty and Mick because we're both Sarah M. So myself, um, Crystal, and Sarah, we're running the the, the hunt. We have it structured um, as a private private pack right now. And, um, you know, Marty and Crystal, they do a lot of the hound work and the hound breeding. Marty's hunting the hounds. Um, and Crystal's kind of our, our kennelman and, and, and kennel huntsman and taking care of the hounds, you know, um, in between when we're down there and uh, Crystal's also whipping in. I'm whipping in at the moment. Um, and I spend a, a lot of more of my time doing more secretarial treasury type type duties. And we all, I think that's the really exciting part too, is we all really balance each other out and have our gifts that we're able to, to really use in, in this new pack. And um, we balance each other out really well. So that's the fun part. And you grew up hunting in Virginia. Is that right? Yeah, so I grew up in Orange County, Virginia, so right near Charlottesville area, um, and I grew up hunting with Keswick and Bull Run, and my family's still still back in Virginia, and I get to visit them fairly often, which is nice because I get to come back out and hunt, but work took me out to Missouri and was lucky enough to meet meet Sarah Martin while I was out there, and she kind of took me under her wing, and um, I've been in Missouri three years now, and it's been great. Oh, I love it. I think it's you know, it's, it's interesting and dynamic. And I think it's really good for the sport that you do have such dynamic backgrounds. And, you know, you look at a lot of the leadership of other hunts, and I don't say this disparagingly, but the fact of the matter is, is that a lot of leadership folks are older. And so, you know, it's exciting to see some younger people in the sport and, you know, taking leadership roles. So what do you think the future looks like for Ozark? Yeah, so the future is really exciting. We've got a lot of great um, territory. We just got it. We can't get it paneled quick enough, which is really exciting. And, you know, and I think about when you think about the future of fox hunting, I think Midwest has a huge role to play. And, you know, having grown up in Virginia, too, where we were lucky to, you know, hunt with multiple hunts and everyone would have joint meets and have um, a lot of, you know, exciting opportunities to interact. I think that that is the, the future of fox hunting is having this culture where we're all supportive of one another and really trying to the sport and keep it going and you know i think that that's that's what having new packs get developed and having new people get involved that's what it's all about is to share the fun and share the sport yes absolutely i i agree wholeheartedly and i do also strongly agree that i think a lot of the future of fox hunting is in the midwest and even the western united states you know there's so much more open land in that part of the world so um Oh, I had a question on the tip of my chin. Oh, yes. If people are listening and they want to find Ozark and get in touch with y'all, how would they do that? Yeah, they can contact um, Sarah Martin or myself. Um, or we also have a private Facebook page that they can look up. Um, and it's, um, they can also send us an email at ozarkhighlandhounds at gmail.com. And we can get um, email correspondence that way. But Facebook is usually a good route to go as well and, and join our group that way. Perfect. And I would advise folks too, that if you can mention, do y'all have questions in your Facebook page to join in? Um, we do. Yeah. So we would encourage folks to fill out the questions as you join in, just so we know who's kind of joined in and that we could best um, answer any questions that folks may have that are interested. Yeah. And I, I would advise too, if they say, if they heard about y'all on the, the podcast to mention the podcast and the questions so that kind of gives you an yeah, idea of, of where people are coming from. So, well, thank you so much for coming on and sharing the exciting news. And hopefully we'll get to follow back up with you in a year and so and see how things are going. 
That sounds great. Well, thanks for having us on. Congrats, ladies. Fabulous. Well, thank you for joining us today for this this rendition of the Fox Hunting Horses in the Morning. You can find me, Tara, on Instagram. Just search for at TN Tibbets, two B's, two T's. Find the links to today's guests in the show notes at horsesinthemorning.com. You can follow Horses in the Morning on Facebook. Just search for Horses in the Morning. Dun, dun, dun. And you can have all of the Horse Radio Network shows with you wherever you go. Just download the free Horse Radio Network app for your iPhone or your Android. Go to your app store, search Horse Radio Network. And if you don't know where your app store is, find a friendly person under the age of 19 and hand them to your phone and tell them what you want to do. They'll do it for you. They'll set it up and you're good to go. So uh, I guess it's time to say goodnight. Good night. Good night.